0: Welcome to Overcrest, I'm Chris and I'm Jake. And I was super tempted to use the Top Gear song for the intro to the show, but oh. I didn't want to get sued for uh, for some sort of <laughs> copyright, copyright license yep. infringement, yep. something like that. Guys, we have Ollie Marriage. he's the head of car testing at Top Gear. On Not only does he today. have
1: an awesome job title, he is just an awesome guy with yeah. some amazing
0: stories. Yeah, full of vim and vigor, as I, as I or said. Or as he's, I
1: didn't allude to, perhaps gin and soda
0: (laughs) well he had just gotten home from work so i I don't know if that if that'd be true or not Uh, it's 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 a great interview i we go through everything through future cars car journalism some of his favorite stories that he's ever told i can tell they're awesome just like these super kick-ass stories about driving some amazing incredible things um but before we get into the interview with ollie what have you got for us
1: Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. And I, Chris, and I both like their t-shirts so much that <laughs> we were on a Zoom call yesterday. We both log on and we're like. Crap! We're both wearing the same petrol box t-shirt. Yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the box Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the box Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OverCrest at checkout to get $6 off your first month.
0: All right. So you know when I talk about being in the future that I'm just gonna be uh, turn into a rugby i'm already <laughs> I know. what are we in the future from what five minutes ago it's uh I'm, we're gonna be rebels right a lot of us are gonna be just like we're gonna hold on to our cars we're gonna drive them anyway even yeah because i think ollie's gonna be part of oh, our club
1: oh you're right for sure yeah, I think it is. <laughs> all
0: right guys here's our interview with ollie head of car testing at top gear hey chris ollie how's it going man very good, indeed. How are you? Very good. I'm here with my co-host, Jake. I really appreciate you hanging out with us. Hi, Ollie. Ah, no problem. Hey, Jake.
2: How are you doing? I'm good. How are you?
0: Oh,
2: I'm on good form, actually. I'm on good form.
0: You sound like you're full of vim and vigor over there across the <laughs> pond. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's been quite an interesting day, actually. I've been into London for the first time in several months to to the office, which is, which is weird, actually. I met some colleagues in the office today, which was... Yeah, unusual in the current situation.
0: Yeah, so is it uh, is going to London weird? I mean, what car do you have to pick a certain car to drive to even go over there at this point?
2: <laughs> no, we've got. I mean, I just tend to work through whatever test cars we've got in at the time. So sure. I've been in a new Audi E-Tron GT today. So it's quite nice to just go in and out and just, yeah, sit and relax and sit in the traffic for an hour and a half.
0: I was looking at the, <laughs> the sound. We, we had a news article that we did last week that was talking about BMW's new sound with Hans Zimmer and everything like that. And they were comparing, <laughs> yeah. I was looking up what, and they, they used a bunch of different things to make the sound. And then I was looking at the Etron GT and they used like 40 different sounds to create the sound of that thing. It, sound, it kind of sounds like if you recorded a, someone really? vacuuming and then played it back <laughs> and then played it back in slow motion, but with a subwoofer. It's <laughs> kind of what it sounds like. That car.
2: <laughs> it's it's quite strange sitting in it because you you're aware of this sort of background hum that sort of sounds a bit sort of yeah a bit I can sort of see the sort of industrial deep vacuum noise right and it sort of yeah sits in the background and you hear this thing sort of humming and burring and it's quite an electrical noise but it's quite it's interesting at least Do you something lust going for it? on in there. Do you lust for the sound? Ah, not lust. No. 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 Not lust for it, I'm afraid. Do you think future generations will lust for the sound? I, I, there's definitely some work to do there. You can have a lot of fun, I think, with sound in electric. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think at the moment everyone's been quite tentative with it. They're not quite sure what their car what noise their cars should be making. So they're just being a bit careful at the moment and going, Oh, we've got this sort of noise which is no go the full Star Wars, make it sound mad <laughs> It'd
1: be much better. <laughs> I think my problem with it, Ali, is it's not it, it's all artificial, right? If there was a natural, yes. cool noise that an electric motor made then I would, I would love that noise, right? Yeah, because yeah. that is actually what's yeah. being generated and that makes the power. It's because we associate yeah. the exhaust sound of an internal combustion engine with, that's actually what's making the power, that it's just, it's natural. And I feel like all yeah. these, exactly, <laughs> yes. Having something like that noise, it's just, it's <laughs> nothing about it is natural or, you know, it, it's just all artificial. That's what bugs me, I think.
2: Yeah, there is that, isn't it? But then again, a lot of the internal combustion stuff we're driving these days. I know. Well, well, I mean, I know. Don't get me started with that either. And, I know. That, that, in a way, that offends me more than it does in electric cars. Because I just of the think lie. in electric cars, yeah, you need some sort of noise. But in. in 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 internal combustion, to have a car, an engine that you know makes that great noise, and yet to not use it Mm -hmm. and to sort of pump it up just feels a bit of a
1: bit What if we just make our electric motors with really bad bearings in them so they just (laughs) naturally whine a lot or something? (laughs) It's not like a straight-cut gearbox. Do you know,
2: if you drive some electric cars back-to-back, you can actually... You, you drive them and some of them do feel like they've got a bit of sand caught in them somewhere compared with others. Some just seem super smooth and other ones do feel a bit like, oh no, someone shoved some grit in that somewhere and it's <laughs> a bit sticky.
0: Yeah, that's it's, it's a bizarre world. And, you know, it, there is a little bit of, when I think of like a musician creating the sound of a car, mm. there is something a, a little bit romantic there. Like let's, if it were yeah. me and I was Porsche, for example, or maybe somebody that we don't know who designed their sound, whatever, I would take that that guy, the composer, I would shove him in the car with like Lance Stroll and just be like, let's go. And I would send him out on the track and give him all the effects of the car just being thrown around and be like, all right, now write a song that's about that. That's this car. And then maybe we can get some sort of yeah. emotion into things.
2: That'd be quite nice, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah. So inspired by racing driving sounds.
0: Yeah, inspired by a musician who doesn't drive any cars getting thrown around in the backseat like Madonna in back in the day yeah. in the Drive film with Clive yeah. Owen. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So in, ter- work. in terms of calling up a manufacturer and going, give me one of those. I imagine your life is the easiest in that regard. Cause I'm sure working with top <laughs> gear, you're just like, I want to try that. And they're like, yes, sir. Right away. And it shows up with a bow on top and everything else like that. But I'm imagining <laughs> as a journalist, it wasn't always that way for you. And though you have what, what I would see as a journalist as well as the ultimate gig, right? How'd you get there? What was the, yeah. you know, obviously you didn't <laughs> just walk up to top gear and be like, hire me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, um- to give you a bit of backstory, I <laughs> and I have told this story a few times before. I I actually go into schools and talk to schools quite often about my job because it's, you know you're right it sounds ridiculously glamorous. I'm the head of car testing at Top Gear. It sounds it is this boys' own dream job. And when I was growing up, aged like I started reading car magazines when I was aged like eleven or twelve and just absorbed so much and just found them so fascinating. And all the guys who were writing in them became heroes to me. So all those guys, and then I suddenly ended up getting into it. But how I got into it was slightly interesting, because, you know, if you've got a younger audience, I wouldn't necessarily encourage them to follow the route that I did, which was to basically flunk my way through school, (laughs) go to university and still do no work and get far too stuck into the the sports clubs and the social side shall we say of university and then came out of university not knowing what I wanted to do and it was only when I was about 21 22 and I was working in ski resorts in France because another big passion of mine was mountains and skiing and stuff and I was working in a ski resort and towards the end of one of the seasons we were out there um, four of us were sitting around a bar table saying, Are we gonna go back and get another get a, a summer job so we can come out and do another season, or are we gonna go back and get proper jobs? And if we're gonna get proper jobs, what should those proper jobs be? And it was that is the only time, aged about 21, 22, that I suddenly occurred to me, wow, I've always loved cars. I've always loved writing about, I've like enjoy writing, I've loved, you know, car magazines, I've been reading them since the year dot. That's what I should be doing. So I came back from a sea, from a, this ski season in France and sent letters, because that's what you did back then, sent letters to various magazines, and luckily just got my foot in the door of a magazine called What Car, which is quite, you know, by the standards of them, it's not the most glamorous magazine. It does fairly standard prosaic car buying advice and everything. What's but Ollie driving the at the, the time?
0: You're 21, 22, just getting your first, key, a, first foot in the door.
2: I was driving a Peugeot 205. Okay. That's respectable. I mean, that that works. Oh, no, it's great. It was great. I used to, uh, when I was at university, I used to, because I was in university up in the north of England, and I used to buy cars when I was up there um, during term time. I'd buy a car up there, and then I'd sell it when I came back down home in the summer because I could sell, I reckon I could do a year's motoring at university and then sell the car for what I'd paid for it when I got home in the summer just about it sort of sort of worked sort of worked but yeah man math that was me adding up but you know I had this old Peugeot I had an old Peugeot 205 at the time loved it to bits um, and then it eventually yeah it eventually went obviously when I started being fortunate enough to start being loaned cars and things but yeah so I've, it was getting a foot in the door and I'd worked for, working at this magazine called What Car but on the other side of the office was Autocar magazine. And this was a magazine I had read growing up.
0: Yeah, there we go. Knew
2: all the people who were working on it. It was all the heroes. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing being sitting here and looking across the office and having all these people. And luckily, I managed to do all right, made a bit of a name for myself and um, got pulled across the office into Autocar. Was there anything in particular that you
0: you wrote or did that kind of pulled you across that you were like, look at this, guys, this is what I can do?
2: I don't think so. I think when, when you're young and you're just trying to get your foot in the door of these things, I think it's basically keep your nose clean, make tea, do what everyone tells you to do when they tell you to do it, and don't don't mess up. So it's, you weren't hopping really in like an Aston Martin as
0: well. DB5 and drifting around and going, hey, hey! <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think especially um, – We still, I think the older guys still have a little bit towards the younger guys. Look, back in your box, boy. I'll come to you when, you know, you could, but no one comes straight into the business and gets, oh yeah, it's your first day at work. Here, here's a Lamborghini. Off you go down to the test track. Right. It just, I I mean, there's i think it's even truer these days than it was back then but certainly back then we had to be you had to be 25 years old before the insurance would work for you, you to be able to drive them and things that's now moved up and up so you have to be like 30 now before you can drive some of these cars in the uk um but yeah so you you build up to it don't you and then you you realize that you've you've kept your nose clean and someone says All right yeah, there you go here's here's a car with 250 or 300 horsepower go,
1: wow this is
0: amazing <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Do Do you still get that? I mean, there must have been like the first car. I mean, we're thinking, what was it like a Diablo or I don't I don't really know your age or anything like that. Ooh, what, what was your What was the first, first when you turned twenty five? What was it? What was the car? Porsche nine eleven. It was a nine eleven. So that was the we, first we one they bit, gave you the keys to for. Tr-
2: exactly. So age twenty five. It was a bit because of the how the insurance worked. It was a bit of like right the day you turn twenty five. You've got to take something cool home that night which is great and it's it's lovely so yeah someone there was a Porsche 911 in that week and um yeah that's why I was sent home with, home for home with on my 25th birthday I think which was brilliant and that was just Happy you know no, I drove it all night long took my mates out in it took it around, showed my parents <laughs> look your son hasn't been quite the dropkick you thought he might
0: be <laughs> um, all I had to so... do was turn 25 it's my birthday look what we got <laughs> yes
1: yeah we have a lot of Porsche listeners, and they're going to be wondering. So, what year nine eleven was this? What spec?
2: That was a nine nine six. It would have been a Carrera two because it was soon after the nine nine six sure. launched. So, yeah, that was nineteen ninety six, I think. Yeah.
0: So, so, one of the things that I struggle no, with, like, on, is, no, I
2: didn't turn twenty four. Yeah,
0: ninety. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, one of the things I struggle with is you know we do this podcast, and I haven't I haven't driven everything. I've driven a lot of things, but I haven't driven many more things. There's many more things I have not driven than I have driven when you were starting out and you turned 25 you get this 996 what are you using as a barometer for contrast to explain what that car <laughs> is to, is like to drive it's way different than the experiences you have now what was it like back then
2: it was it was sort of fascinating and you got the thing is what what i think the the publishing companies were really good at back then was helping the younger guys to really understand and put those cars into context. So you go out and help on shoots. So even before you would, you know, before you were first driving these cars, you'd be able to go out and go on the shoots, and they'd have, you know, there'd be a Maserati uh, GT along, there'd be a Lotus along, there'd be other things to give you context. And you just, it was great because you could go in and sit in them, and you get a feel for them. You start to understand where the brands are, what the engineering's like, and you start to get a feel for the cars just through osmosis of just being exposed to them. And it is amazing, even just passengering in cars, how if you just get straight from one car into another, how how quickly and distinctly you pick up the differences between those cars. And that, I think, is the one thing that our job gives us, which is such a privilege – is to be able to have four or five cars, or they all compete with each other. You've got them all. You can go and drive them back to back immediately after one another on the same bit of road, and you get this. It sort of comes to you. you go, wow! I didn't. You know, you do. You get it. Everything becomes very clear, and it makes our jobs very easy. I think, and uh, it, yeah, puts us in this fantastic, very privileged position to be able to sort of communicate this to the readers.
1: Speaking of the different personalities of cars, and you can kind of instinctively pick that up, do you think some of that difference or uniqueness is going to be lost as everything moves to electric?
2: Yes, I do. I I thought at the moment, I have seen no evidence. um, And I really can't think of any car that has shown me any evidence that they can make electric cars have a dynamic, distinct personality from other cars. And that surely is what all these car companies are working towards is to work out how does an electric Ferrari feel different to an electric Lamborghini feel different to an electric Porsche and how they build this do- into the dynamics of the car. Because I have no du- no question they can do it with the brand management, they can do it with the materials inside, they can do it with the styling and the feel and the textures of things, but how they build that into the dynamics of the car because it's not like Porsche is going to suddenly stick all the batteries behind the back wheels of a car. Go, yeah, right. there you go. That's how to make a 911 feel like a 911. We'll make it a bit shit to start with and then we'll sort the dynamics <laughs> out over the next 30 years. It's not going to happen. So it's, yeah, they've they've got a big job on their hands and it's fascinating. These car, these car companies, they all have billions of pounds of R&D budget to spend. And at the moment, I think they are all struggling to work out how they dynamically distinguish between
0: their models. In the enthusiast car world, specifically in in this vein, we're seeing this weird surge of erosion of driving liberty you know coupled with also with these huge leaps in performance at the same time mm. and it's this it's this real big push pull like this banging heads together that's happening right now and I think at some point we're going to start to see the erosion start to take over and I'm just kind of wondering where you think car journalism is going to go as we kind of move away you know everything's fast right now everything's fast fast yeah. it doesn't even matter anymore are we just going to mm. be talking more about Hans Zimmer and how much air is coming out of the aircon <laughs> and the seats <laughs> and the screens and the resolution as everything starts to become this I feel like it's coming it's the start of the homogenous blob is kind of where this is seems like (laughs) it's going to me
2: so so i have two two thoughts on this Uh, a i find it borderline terrifying that this does seem to be the way we are going um and i wonder partially if it's just a, a something to do with our age i'm in my 40s I'm getting older i look you know i look back and go oh the golden era of cars was in the late 1990s when i was young and everything mm-hmm. was brilliant and all the cars were fantastic and traction control didn't exist and everything was glittery and lovely um and so I, you look back on the things with that sort of rose-tinted spec and specs and think oh the younger guys coming up now I have no idea but was that the same back in when i was that age and we were there, I know all the older guys then were looking back another 20 years and going, right. oh, you have no idea how great things were in the 70s. But actually looking at the British car industry in the 1970s, no one <laughs>
0: thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I think it was like <laughs> five or, or ten not. years ago. When you could still afford all that <laughs> yeah. stuff, you could afford all the stuff from the 70s, 80s, 90s. You could go out and buy it, you know, with a tax return yeah. practically. You could go buy these cars. Now it's impossible. You can't buy anything. Mm. Plus, you could put modern brakes, yeah. tires, everything. You could order parts. They would show up. And in then in the next day, you didn't have to open up a catalog mm. and scroll through and check a box and send a slip in to somebody. It was, I feel yeah. like it was just <laughs> yeah. recently that we finally left the golden era. Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm, I think you're probably right. I think when you look at i mean what what yeah what concerns me is that cars are getting they're getting too fast and now if you speak to the car companies th- and i've had this conversation with people from uh, mclaren people from ferrari they say that yes in theory we could make a car with less power than the last generation had but it would have to be faster so the the if the power doesn't go up the speed has got to go up and the only way to get the the power down the speed up is by reducing the weight of the cars. And I don't think that's going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen now with the move to electric. Right, And that worries me because I already think that certainly in the UK, if you've got a car with 200 brake horsepower per ton, say, you know, a ton and a half car with 300 horsepower, that's pretty quick. And that would give you, in terms of what you need from the dynamic experience of of that car, that is likely to give you as much performance as you can actually use comfortably. So I've just been, the last couple of days, been driving things like the BMW M5 CS. And that's a car with 630 horsepower that can do 0-60 in 3 seconds and is it's, it's extremely quick.
0: But, but does it drift it does, that much better than my E39 M5? I saw your drift on, on, <laughs> on social media. I saw it. And then I went, well, mine does that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, exactly. Yeah. So you, I,
2: no, it doesn't. And the, the problem with these cars is they've, they've taken their level of ability to such a high level that they're, they're super clean through corners and so, they're so stable and composed at very high speeds. That you're finding that you're you're turning along a, a country lay, a country road, going. Oh my God, this is so easy, and you then catch a glimpse of the speedo and go, Oh my God, that's so illegal. <laughs> and it's that is a that is a dangerous position to be in. So, right. and I don't know how they get away from that and get back to the sort of it, there's a huge engineering challenge in there, and I don't think that anyone's now going to look at curing that because they're now all working on what do we do with electric to make electric engaging.
0: Right. And How do they make you the hair stand few, up on your arms on in, with that?
2: Exactly. Because I just got, I can't, I think everyone's going to be looking at this and going, well, the only way to make electric engaging is to give it a smaller battery pack. Therefore we need the battery technology to improve. So we're not building a car with 2000 horsepower that's blown through all its range in 60 miles. And you're just looking through looking at all of this and it, uh, it, it scares me in a way. I don't, you know, they, there seems to be this, this giant leap. In performance that we're hearing about through from like the Tesla Roadster, from the Lotus of VIA, from the RIMAC C2. From the 2, Kia, the new Kia EV power. that's
0: coming out that zero to 60 yeah. in three and a half seconds. That's
2: a Kia. I know. It's, it's all mad. It's all mad. And the problem with electric performance for me is that it is so one-dimensional. It is. Mm -hmm. You do it a few times, and I've taken people out in Teslas and go, look, the most amazing thing about this, the bit you'll actually use, is nothing to do with how fast it accelerates. It's how it follows the track of the road and and reads the white lines. That's the clever and probably more interesting bit of the technology than just making it go faster in a straight line. Because the making it go faster in a straight line is just I press the right-hand pedal to go faster, and I press the left-hand pedal to slow down. There's no... there's no involvement in that process it's just a g-force experience and you might as well just hop on a roller coaster or do something like that it's it's the same thing once you've done it once or twice you go yeah it's very impressive and yeah if a Porsche 911 comes up behind me I can ditch it quite quickly (laughs) but there's no enjoyment in that it just becomes a competitive element of if that you car's look at, performance, at like it's ga- great when I pull
0: it. A- yeah. I was gonna say you look at like a gas pedal, and you're speaking of like a gas pedal being an on-off switch. I was for some reason in my head, I was thinking of the difference between like the electric power band, and I have an old nine eleven that is carbureted mm-hmm. with a with a camshaft in it and stuff like that, and it's got a you know a ton yeah. of power. And it's almost like when you mm-hmm. when you watch a movie and there's some guy, like, tying a rubber band around his arm and he's about to shoot a bunch of heroin, he shoots it into his arm, and then there's, like, this... He kind of sits down, and then... Oh, and then it's like the euphoria comes on. That's what, like, a camshaft is like, right? <laughs> you, you, you shoot that drug into your arm. You, that's you flooring the gas pedal, and then... Wah, and then you get it, and it's just like you wait for it, and it's this anticipation. And then once you're up there, you're shifting, and it's great, it's great, it's great. And the electric power band is just kind of just... It's like getting hit in the face with a board. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just there right now. And it just made yeah. me think of that when you're talking about, you know, the excitement of an electric power band. Just, it just mm. doesn't feel like it's. I don't know. It just doesn't. There's feel no drama no. to it. I think is there, what there it comes down be. to. There can be. I mean, yeah. a lot of the drama is the rocks that you hear hitting the in, in, inner wheel arches. Is a lot of the drama that I end up hearing in the tire squealing. But True. It just doesn't yes. feel like a camshaft.
2: Because <laughs> it isn't. No, I guess. It <laughs> and and it is basically all you're doing is accelerating in one gear so you know there's no gear change or anything involved it's just like here i am this is what this gear does it just goes from slow to fast and there's no it, it's not even got the the thrill of pulling a paddle that you get with the with a, having sort of eight gears to choose from and being able to play with the power band and slow down and go well i don't need to accelerate as fast this time i just want to be in a different gear and see what that experience is like what the noise is like at 2,000 revs and 6,000 revs and feel what the engine does there. You know, an engine is intrinsically a really fascinating thing, mm-hmm. and the level of development we've got we've got to with engines and so if You look at what they were, but yeah, and the variety of them. And I know we've tended, but they've become more homogenous in the last sort of five or ten years, and we're losing some of the more fascinating layouts but you've still got them there you know Ferrari is still developing V12s Porsche is still developing flat sixes you've got a lot of distinct variations there and then you look you start and then if you're a complete geek like me and you start to get into how those engines function and work and the fascinating bits that go into them you just think wow this is still you know there's so much richness and texture and all of that going on it's yeah i just love it
0: you well know, how do we how do we convince the manufacturers to do is it? I guess we should say we've. You know, this conversation that we're having has been going on for a couple mm. of years, and the question yeah. is: Is there a way for the manufacturers to make it real? I, I look at what Porsche was doing with the Taycan, the one with mm. Bill Nye. Have you seen the the Bill Nye, the science guy? You probably don't have him over in the UK, do you? No. Okay. So we have no. Bill Nye, the science guy. He's basically, <laughs> if you think of a clown that folds up balloons and give them to kids, but also knows a lot about science, that's <laughs> that's Bill Nye. So a lot of the, the you know, we're, we're, I'm 40 years old. You're around 40 years old. When we were kids, Bill Nye was, was the guy, you know, he teaches you science and has foam coming out of beakers and stuff like that. And he's, he's the, yeah. he's the science dude. Porsche hired him to explain all of the science technology and he's wearing his little bow tie and it's super cute and, and kitschy and, and kind of just like, and I kind of watch that and I go, wow, they really just don't care about the enthusiasts anymore because it's not Bill Nye Mm -hmm. showing us the 911 RSR and that amazing engine Mm -hmm. and how it's able to rev so high and make so much power and that it's still a manual transmission. I feel like it's uh, the enthusiasts are just a bunch of wolves we're like waiting outside the door right we're just ready to get them you know we're having this conversation about how bad the manufacturers are and we're just ready to get them we're about we're ready to eat them alive. and, and the 9-11 that they're making now is this them just like chucking little pieces of meat out out the door at us as wolves and, and we're just like eating it up while they destroy what we love in the next room and i don't know yeah. that there's enough of us because we we as enthusiasts are being used kind of like as this uh, this foundation to support these companies, right? Like people that love M and AMG yeah. and the 911, all that stuff. All these companies are built on the heritage of the ultimate driving machine, Porsche heritage with motorsports. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. It all—all all these companies stand on on the shoulders of that. When that disappears mm-hmm. and that's gone, what are, what are we left with? What's you know why would why would they even bother if they know that none of this really matters and it comes to the end?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think because I, I, I fear, and I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK, what we're being told by the government on, the, on our legislation is that after 2030, it will be illegal to sell pure combustion engine cars in the UK. Mm-hmm. So every car will have to have a, a, some measure of electrification in it. Now, I suspect when we get closer to that date, there will be a bit of pushback, but... I, I'm, I'm sort of hoping it's a bit like when Porsche developed the KN to support the 911, that they needed to build. Building the SUV allowed them to carry on the, with the development of the sports cars, and I'm sort of hoping that the, the sales of the electric cars will allow them to still develop the petrol cars. And we, I've just got a nasty feeling about this though, because I sort of want to to believe that there will the these the synthetic fuels will have a life. But right. I think the the complexity of and the communication around trying to persuade people that there are two different types of fuel and yes you can still have petrol pumps and yes you will still have electric pumps. I think synthetic fuels are going to be seen as it's still a petrol fuel and it's therefore com- it's therefore um, environmentally unsound and and it's and it and that isn't going to have, isn't going to catch fire in the way we all want it to. Well, literally speaking. <laughs> but you, yeah, you want you want it to. I don't think it'll it'll quite have the traction with the audience they want it to. And I think they will. I will be surprised if beyond track only cars the that petrol power keeps going. I, and that's my fear. That's my fear for it. But at the same time, as a car enthusiast, I do have to say that I do really enjoy driving electric cars when I'm not trying to get my kicks from them. If it's right. just driving around and getting in and out of town, you know, for the 95% of people who that is what they want from a car – they function brilliantly. They're they're everything you want out of a car. You always want your car to be smoother. You want it to be quieter. You want it to be more comfortable. Well, bingo. An electric car does all that for you, and it does it
0: brilliantly. So why is it so hard to to get people to do it, then? If it does all this stuff brilliantly, it's so quiet, it's so nice, it's cheap. You know, when Mm -hmm. the pipeline gets hacked here in America, you can still drive around. It's all good. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. (laughs) What, why, I mean, I feel like we're still dragging people by the neck over to the trough to drink out of the electric car. I, I get it's range it's all that other things but now that it's all becoming the head it should be a really easy sell for everyone why are they screwing everything up for me (laughs) when this is so awesome to begin with
2: (laughs) because it's that education process isn't it you've got you've got people and they're just worried you know all they read all that you read in the in the mainstream media about electric cars is, Oh, this one can only do a hundred miles. And actually they don't do as much as they claim to do. And then you've got a problem on your hand. And the whole thing about range anxiety, it's rubbish. Mm-hmm. your your range in a car is basically linked to your bladder. And as long as your <laughs> bladder's okay, you'll keep driving. And as soon as your bladder is not okay, you need to stop. So, and that is probably well, that's why about you just every carry an empty bottle hours, of Gatorade
0: with you. Your power <laughs> you just
2: horrible, extends your range. you horrible human. You cannot do that. <laughs> so, but yeah, but if that means that as long as then, so the problem is not range anxiety, it's infrastructure anxiety. Yes. And it's because people don't know how to charge an electric car. And actually, once you've done it a few times and you've got used to it and you've worked out what apps you need and how actually relatively straightforward it is. Then you sort of get over the fact that, oh, I've got to, you know, I've instead of, instead of being stopped for just two minutes, yes, you've got to stop for 20 minutes. But it's all right. It, you can actually survive. It's you can you can get places. But it's that crossover of convincing people that they will be okay. And when the charging infrastructure, which is sort of starting to get going in the UK, but I have to say, I think the energy companies have been dreadful. You know, the fact that Tesla is away and so far ahead of everyone else because I mean the bloke is a genius. So I'll give him that. Yep. He worked out that the actual answer wasn't to get the car technology right, It's to make sure you had you could bloody charge the thing up and you could go somewhere and use it and travel with it. And I mean, Elon smashed it out of the park with the supercharger network. It's brilliant. And everyone else is paddling like fury. And the, the energy companies haven't caught up. They, they've made, you know, in the in Europe, we've had a lot of this Ionity network, which is a lot of it has been funded by car companies like Porsche, Mercedes, Ford, have all funded or had to fund their own network because the energy companies aren't coming on. And what you're finding is that instead what we've got is a lot of um, private smaller companies are building um their own infrastructure for electric and they're doing it at different places so you go to a gyms and things just off the motorway and they'll be charging networks of gyms or hotels or coffee shops and that's fine but the prices vary it's like a it's like the wild west out there some places you'll pay like 20p per kilowatt of power some places you'll pay like 60 or 70p so it's like your pricing of charging fluctuates massively and so it's all i mean it's quite exciting from my point of view, it's like wow, this is this is fascinating. This is like watching, you know, beta testing in real life. Everything's yeah. happening, and and but you worry about, you know, what that's going to mean to people. People are going to be shocked. You know, they're going to go and think, well, my electric car is far cheaper to run than my petrol car. Oh, hang on, what does my credit card statement says? It cost me fifty quid to do a hundred miles in my car.
0: Right. So
2: it's yeah, everyone's get. There's a lot of education to be done, I think, for people out there.
0: So as a tester, is it hard, just shifting gears a little bit here, huh? As a tester, is it hard to take things in context and time in which they were made to give them a fair shake? For example, you know, you get into a brand new Golf GTI right after you got out of a, 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 a Tycon or something like that. With, with just like stuff yeah. that's so, how do you reset your mind to be able to understand what makes a GTI good when it does almost nothing mm-hmm. better than a, a, a much better car?
2: Yeah. The the thing you always have to keep in mind, I think, as a journalist is, A, who are my audience? Who's reading what I write? And B, what does a buyer of this car expect to get from it? And what job does this do? And as soon as you analyze those two elements, who am I writing for? And what job is this car supposed to do? You can then stand back from saying, I've just got out of a Taycan. I've just got into a Golf GTI because you consider them separately. And the joy of our job and the, the the it's why it's so so we're so lucky in what we do is we drive everything. So we get, you know, and you've got this stored back catalogue of every car you've ever driven that talks into what you've done, what you're doing now. So you can get in a Golf GTI and go, well, okay. And I may not be able to remember the last Golf GTI or what the Renault Megane was like or what the Hyundai i30N was exactly like. But it quite quickly comes back to you when you get in a Golf and you go down a road thinking not it's got less grip than the Taycan, but actually this feels a bit duller into corners than the Hyundai i30N or the refinement's better. And you put that car into its own context. And I think that's... That's what makes us so fortunate, really, and that's that's the job we've got to. That's for this, those are the stories we've got to tell.
0: And I think the when you look at vintage and classic cars too, that's the most important thing you can do is put the car in the context of when and why it was built, for who, how much it cost at the time it was created. Because you almost no classic <laughs> yeah. car, but my car is my '72 911 probably performs far poorer compared to a uh, like a V6 Camry. That's brand new, probably uh, yeah. can't break as well, can't turn as well, but it's important <laughs> to take things in the context of when they when they were made. And uh, Exactly. About a year ago, alongside some photos of really bougie brand new 911 Turbo S, you tweeted, I was concerned I had forgotten how to drive. Instead, I had merely <laughs> forgotten how much I love driving. And I was thinking hmm. this kind of goes in the vein of driving so many cars what did you mean by that? That you forgot yeah. how much you love to drive? And what how did the nine eleven wake that up for you?
2: That was that was when we came when the UK came out of lockdown last May time, we I had spent two two months at home in my pants, not going anywhere. In your pants? And Why, Why? are you <laughs> like, okay? Uh, just that was Zoom call <laughs> politeness. Oh, okay, okay, got gotcha, you, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Yes, I have got something on below the waist. Just, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that it was, it was that, and I because I'd had a, I'd had I, at the time I was running an Audi RS six, but. I had literally been parked on my drive and I think we were all in that mold of certainly in the UK of going no we will be good and I was there was half of me part of me that wanted to go out and I wanted to go and do my usual commute just to see what it was like with no cars on the road and I thought no no be good stay at home do all the things we've been told to so I did that and so and then when we did get the opportunity to get out and that was literally the first car I got into after lockdown lifted, it was like, wow, this feels amazing.
0: It was, like, it was thought, like when you were 25 all sl- over again.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was that slight fear of like, oh, my God, I haven't done any driving for two months. And yet the first car I've got to go out and drive is a new 650 horsepower 911 Turbo S. It's like, oh, oh I'm not quite sure I'm ready for this. we <laughs> will break myself in a bit more gently.
0: <laughs> so... What When you look back at all of the cars you've driven, if you could mm. pick, it's you can always say, well, what would you drive for an SUV? What would you drive for a daily driver, sports car, luxury mm. car? But if you, yeah. what was the best car in the context of what it was purposed for? The best car you've ever driven? Yeah. What did its job, what it was built to do, and what it was meant to compete with better than any other car? Okay,
2: so I'm going to give you two. And unfortunately, neither of them is a standard road car. Because- <laughs> all right. When you, look at, when you look at racing cars, those are the ones that are so defined in what they do and how they do it that they just captivate you in a, different, in a slightly different way. So the two cars I would always cite for being just miraculous in what they do in the territory in which they're designed to do it, I drove... This is a slightly long story, but I'll tell it anyway, and you can edit out whatever no, we you want. We've got plenty want. of
0: time, man. This, but, is, but, this is an okay, on-air cool. BBC. So, We're good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so back in 2014, we did a feature with Hyundai in the UK where we took a standard Hyundai i20, fresh off the boat from Korea, in white, absolutely bog-standard car. And over the course of a year, we turned it into a rally car. And it was when Hyundai just got their WRC program going. And we said, right, we'll reflect that. We'll take a complete standard car. We'll turn it into a rally car. And the conclusion of the piece will go to be and do a round of the WRC. And in the UK, they have the um, Wales Rally GB, which is the round of the WRC that, uh, that national cars, so, so much lesser rally cars, can also go and do. So we turned this thing into this 1.6 litre, 160 horsepower. It was brilliant. It was a little tearaway. And as part of that, we'd done some stories with the WRC team. And I said to them, if I win my class, can I drive your car? And they went, ho, 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 it'll (laughs) never happen. And it shouldn't have happened. But yes, you can have our car. Yes, you can drive our car. So anyway, get to Wales Rally GB. By a complete fluke, I'd been, we shouldn't have done as well as we did in our class, but we managed to win. Win the, win the B2 class, which is not the most competitive class in Wales, in Wales Rally GB, but we did brilliantly in it and we managed to win. And Hyundai were as good as, a, good as their word at the following year's Wales Rally GB. They said, right, if you can come up when the rally finishes, whichever one of our cars hasn't been rolled into a ball of scrap, you can take away and have and do what you want for two days. So... And how brilliant. long did it they take you to Danny book your Sordo. plane ticket for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no time at all. <laughs> no time at all. They'd, literally, Danny Sordo, I think, had finished third on, on the rally, and the car came off the podium. They put it in a transporter and said, there, there it is. You've got until, I think it was the day after tomorrow night, then we're going to pick it up, and you can take it away and do what. So they sent a couple of mechanics along with it. But because um, – world rally cars have to be road legal because they have to drive, drive between the stages. Right. So we took this thing and we did, we went to, we took it to some of the best roads in North Wales and drove it up and down those. We took it to to a drive through and went through a drive through in it. We took it, <laughs> did a motorway section down into London. We drove it around London at late at night. We took it to a, a rally stage, Were uh, people, like a rally cross circuit. What was the
0: interaction with, with citizens as you're going through <laughs> well, drive through? You- I mean, it, it must have been like... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah yeah a, a fair bit of that the best one was we drove it around piccadilly circus which is like the, the busiest point of central london it's like times square in new york lots of glowing neon and all the rest of it we drove it around there late at night and the police stopped us unsurprisingly because we're in this thing <laughs> and it's making a lot of noise and there's nothing you can do to really to quiet it down if you've got a switch for the anti-lag system which is the system which injects a load of petrol into the yep. turbos to kind to, to improve the response. But basically, and they, they the first copper took a fairly dim view of what we were doing because he'd seen <laughs> me do like five laps of Piccadilly Circus <laughs> just going round and round and round. And there's a photographer and a videographer giving me a thumbs up and I'm just going, right, a bit more revs in second gear. <laughs> and, um,
0: I'm just so, imagining some and, but, lady with like glasses and curlers in her hair and like a silk robe in a window, <laughs> in a beautiful window, stone, <laughs> handmade, outer window with her phone. he out here have been going for an hour oh man but <laughs> oh, with a better accent <laughs> but it, yeah. no there's no better accent
2: than the one you've just done that for. <laughs> 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 but actually they were quite they were relatively chilled out about it they once they'd realized that what we were doing and who we were i mean i have to say that is where the top gear pull out the big top gear card yeah does come in very handy yeah yeah it's yeah situations like that when you were go, able yeah, drive by the
0: here. guys that don't move the guys that are just standing there, the, the Royal Guard. <laughs> did you drive by them and see if you could get them to do something? That would have been pretty. good. Ah, that would have been a good
2: shout. Yeah, should have gone past them, backfired the exhaust with yep. the anti-lag yep. and <laughs> lit that up. No, <laughs> no that was, that was a, that, I'll do that next time. <laughs> so that was one. That was one car, and I then a couple of years later, the relationship with Honda got good enough. They actually let. They took it to portugal for us and we did an amazing had an amazing day with it on a proper rally stage in portugal and what this car can do on gravel and on tarmac, we drove it around race racetrack in full gravel setup on gravel tires it was just hilarious absolutely amazing <laughs> and the best way i can think of to describe what it was like is that if you imagine that any input you put into the car any turn of the steering reaction to the brakes or the throttle, it happens instantly, absolutely instantly. And that car will do, will sort of exaggerate what you want to do. So if you turn in a little bit, it, the back will be out of line and you really you do is plant the throttle and it seems like the car knows where the exit of the corner is better than you do. It's uncanny, absolutely uncanny. But if that car, if anything happens to that car, so rather than your inputs into the system, if it hits anything, so if it if the front wheel hits a massive rock on the inside of a corner. If you run wide over a corner and the back wheel hits a berm on the outside, that doesn't seem to phase it whatsoever. <laughs> it's like it glides over anything that it hits, but any input you put into it happens instantaneously. And it was just the most fabulous fabulous um experience really and then you think wow that's what you can do when you spend i don't know 50,000 quid on a pair of dampers at, <laughs> for a set of dampers and have an engine machine from billet and is right. i mean it was absolutely incredible plus gravel so, is yeah. so good
0: my favorite place to drive oh, my car is gravel. gravel. It is phenomenal yeah. to learn. You can do everything you want to yeah. do at a looser speed or a lower speed, especially yeah. a nine eleven on tarmac. Drifting around an old nine eleven is a little grabby mm. and a little odd, but in gravel, it's awesome. I love gravel. It's the best.
2: Oh, it is. It's it is fantastic. I uh, just yeah. Give, give me because I've I've yeah. If out of two, if someone said go and do some racing or go and do some rallying, I'm off. I'm off 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 on gravel rallying it's just i love it i love the way cars move around on it and just that experience you can have it's just yeah unbeatable for me so, so the second car then second car oh, this is me <laughs> pulling the big one out of the bag um <laughs> ridiculously fortunate dick right here um i drove <laughs> alan prosts i drove alan prosts renault re40 formula 1 car so, Ooh. a full 1986 F1 car. Wow. At Dijon Prenoir, which is this amazing old F1 circuit in France. It's the circuit that was made famous um, because of René Arnoux and Gilles Villeneuve. I think it was like 1977, post, no, early 80s maybe, had this amazing duel around this circuit. And Renault, when we'd, we'd done a fair bit of negotiation to be allowed to drive the car, and they'd sit, but, but they're fantastic. Renault have this amazing collection of old cars. And they they use them. They get them out. They take them to grand prix to support what they're doing with the race team and this sort of thing. So, and yeah, they uh, they allowed me to drive um, Alain Prost's car. And when I turned up and they said, uh, they they said, oh, we have turned the boost down a bit for you today. And I thought, oh, bollocks! I was really hoping to drive it in full. <laughs> Only seven hundred horsepower. Said, yeah. <laughs> no, it's still nine hundred horsepower. Oh my god, I think it's 900 horsepower, and it weighed six hundred kilos. It was just dynamite. It was unsodding believable this thing so they had this was one of the turbo era engines it was a twin turbo car so it was in it was in once development of turbo had improved quite a lot so I was quite surprised how drivable it was I wanted it to absolutely terrify me to the fact that I, you know, I I shouldn't have been able to drive it at all. I should have felt completely out of my depth as soon as I got out into it. But actually it was pretty tractable and you could actually use the performance, which is the most scary thing of all. (laughs) But then you start, you start to, you, you start realizing and and we were going, I was on the pit lane pretty much flat out in fifth, but you, you would, you were realizing it then suddenly made you realize that, Oh my God, if you have an accident, and it's what this is one of those cars that your your toes are the crash zone, mm-hmm. and you've had to thread them through these bulkheads, and they are right in the tip of the nose. And you've got, and so when you're wearing the crash helmet, your whole frame of vision is basically you can see each front wheel in the corner vision of your eyes, and you and ahead of you you've got a steering wheel, and that is literally your view. And so you feel like you're strapped to the front of a rocket. And there's one corner at Dijon-Prenois. You come around this hairpin, and then the road goes quite steeply uphill to a crest. And you come out of this corner. You're in second gear. You think you get braver and braver, and you just have it on. And you've got this turbo boosting. And it just feels like you're going to take off. There's no way this car can possibly, as you come over this crest, there's no way it can possibly keep traction and stay on the ground. It just feels like you're on a rocket ship, and it's going to launch you into space. And that, as an experience, has just, you know, that I remember getting out of that car and thinking, just take me now. My job <laughs> will never ever get better than that. You know, what a hero. I mean, as a heroic experience to have and think, oh my God, if twelve year old me could have seen me doing this and thought, wow, one day you'll be lucky enough
0: to do that. <laughs> what what that, transmission is in that, that car? Is that a manual?
2: A five speed manual. Okay. Yeah, so that you still have to gearbox. actually
0: drive the car. So what was have you driven or driven anything that's newer in Formula One, or was this your Formula One experience?
2: Just curious. Um, not in the same way as that. No, okay, I okay. haven't. I've driven like the Lotus Type One Two Five, which was the track day car they did. Um, I've driven that, which is pretty much eight eight tenths of a, of an F one car. But um, that's what interests no, the, me yeah. most
0: is like it's. I don't. I hate to call you a layman, but compared to Lewis Hamilton or Vettel, we're we're all oh, yeah, laymen, yeah. right? We don't. We're just human beings. Yeah. We're not superhuman like so those t- guys I, are.
2: But yeah, it would be so great I'll tell you, to have.
0: I'll tell you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead
2: so i've got i've got so i had a little claim to fame okay so about five six years ago ferrari run this thing called the winter driving series and it's they get all their young hot shots and they they put them through a month's training so they get all the guys who are in their junior academy team and any other for, like formula 3, four and formula three drivers they want to have a look at right and they get invited and it cost them a bloody fortune to go and do this thing but ferrari put them through Everything from PR to diet to exercise to race strategies to talk to engineers. They basically get a month's intense Ferrari Academy training on how to be a racing driver and everything they need to know. And for some reason, I got invited to go along and join them for a week. (laughs) And I spent a week at um, Homestead, Miami. Um, doing this, having my own race engineer, my own, we were in Formula 4 racers, a bath engine Formula 4 racers and I, I was there with so out of the current F1 grid three of them were there, so Nicholas Latifi, uh, Lance Stroll and Max Verstappen were all the best and I was racing against them Good grief. it it was, it was unbelievable, but so I got so frustrated because, you know, I've been driving for a long time, and I like to think I'm pretty good. I couldn't get within a second and a half a lap of them, and I found that so frustrating. And like you're trying as engineer, hard go, as you
0: can. I mean, you are like just, I could. just every corner <laughs> yeah. you thought you so, – you're like, oh, I did way better that time, and then no, no. Yeah, yeah. So there was one sector, there was one
2: sector, and I'm surprised. Um, what, this was the only bit of good takeaway for me was the, the first sector of the thing was the ballsiest, where you just had to commit to stuff. And on that, there was a couple of them I could match, the ones towards the back of the grid that I could match. After that, where, as soon as it got to, so the, the difference and what I think is it takes a very particular person to be a racing driver is it's so much about technique. And everything in a slicks and wings car depends on getting your braking point right. Because if you nail the braking point, you, wear, you nail you're getting the power. You get the power on the brakes as hard as you can to start with, and then bleed it off slowly as you come down to the apex. You're, you're V-shaped cornering, and it so depends on getting that technique right. And if you've got the appetite and the ability to nail that technique, you're onto a winner. I don't. What I like to do is basically chuck it into a corner and sort it out. That's why I love rally. I just want to go. And and you know what? I did I think I did 600 laps. After about 200, I got bored and I couldn't actually be asked to go and improve my technique. I just thought, well, I'll just see what happens. And I sort of reverted to type of being this very binary individual who just chucked it in and just yeah, yeah. Couldn't, couldn't be. But that it showed. that showed, And I came in, I was frustrated with my engine, frustrated, and said to my engineer, look, how? I don't understand. I've been driving for all these years, and I've, d- I've done quite a lot. I've been really experienced. And these guys who are like 16, 17 years old are quicker than me, and it's so annoying. And they said, look, you've got to think of it this way. You are, you've, you've done a lot of driving. You're reasonably good at what you do. That's great. These guys have spent every single weekend. In fact, most of the week since they were five or six years old in a go-kart racing each other in their formative years. Yeah. 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 And everything, their entire lives have been given over to, to being like this. And you think, I uh, came away from it thinking, yeah, still doesn't really, uh, still winds me out. I still, still want to be quicker than them. <laughs> little bloody whippersnappers. I want to have them. Yeah, well, and, uh, I remember so playing get- Gran
0: Turismo back in the day and they'd have these endurance races and it was, you do it for hours, right? You just sit there with your little Pike's Peak, you know, thing. Yeah. And eventually you'd go like, you know yeah. what? I'm going to hire a driver because this is boring. I just can't do it. And it takes a, a finesse and mental endurance to do what those guys do. It's it's absolutely incredible.
2: It does. It, it is it's and I, I have got a huge admiration for them at the same time of, of being because you always I think we all do that as enthusiasts we all do the what if what if I had had that experience what if I was on circuit with them I'd be quicker than now I reckon I've got this technique and I I already knew that that wasn't me, but still, in the back of your mind, until you get an an opportunity like that, you still go, "Yeah, do you know what? I I I could do that. I'd be as quick as them." And then you go and do it, and you go, "Oh oh, oh, no!" Yeah,
1: because
0: it's very easy to just be like, "Oh, those guys have money. That's the only reason they're there." And some of them, maybe judging by some of the behaviors I've seen this season, maybe that's true. But the majority (laughs) of them, no, it's just raw talent.
2: But I tell you. Uh, there was a couple of incidents involving Max Verstappen where I, I tell you, what, at the end of that at the end of that time, I had a bet with his manager that he would be in a Formula One car. I think it was within two years. And his manager said, no, no, no. And I got I've, I currently have framed in my office at home <laughs> a 50 euro note and a letter from Max Verstappen's manager Saying you were right, I was wrong. Here's fifty euros <laughs> we had a it. bet that he would be in Formula One within two years, I and he it. said no, no, we were going to keep him in Formula Two, and then But honestly, of everyone I was watching there, I've got I've got some screen grabs because we after you race after you have done each race you would have a debrief and you would sit and you'd have to justify some of the moves you'd pulled in the race and why you hadn't gone for that gap. And you, it was like being in a class—you in a classroom with all these guys and I was like twice their age and it was really galling. But, and, you're, and you're like, I and don't it, fucking know. That's like,
0: just the way I took that corner yeah. that time. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs>
2: quite. But I've got a screen grab of Max Verstappen and you are on the Homestead Main Straight, and you turn off onto the infield and... At the ballsiest, you are flat in fifth or sixth or whatever you are. And it's all you can do to turn into that corner, hold on to the grip. And I've got a screenshot of the the, the guys ahead of me, five abreast, with Max Verstappen on the inside in a position where I thought, oh, fuck, I'm about to witness the most almighty accident as he can't make that stick and takes out the other four cars that are outside of him. And he didn't, and he made it stick. And I still have no idea how he made that happen. And I've got, and I've, for someone of his age, because I think at the time he was 15 or 16, he he was so young and he was standing, he was, then you'd, and he did some, he had some moves that were fairly bloody punchy, I have to say, but (laughs) still he'd stand there in the, with these, all these Ferrari engineers and guys who have been doing this for donkey's years. Some of them are XF1 team, there are a lot of these academy trainers and things. And he would stand up and justify and argue his corner. And I thought, wow, that someone at that age to have that confidence in their own
0: ability is astonishing. That's worth a 50-year-old no- bet right there. That's what that's <laughs> oh, worth. God, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man, Ollie, we're, so, we're running out of time. I, I could talk to you forever. I Thank you so yeah. much for hanging out with me, man.
2: Oh, no problem. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Where Thoroughly people
0: uh, Obviously, people can just go to topgear.com to see some of your work and just type your name in there, and we'll link to it in the yeah, show exactly. notes. But I'm, it's, yeah, exactly. I've read some I'm of your work. It's great.
2: Marriage on, yeah, I'm at Ollie Marriage on Instagram and Twitter, and yeah, topgear.com. That's the place to find all the work we do.
0: I, I appreciate it, man. We'll we'll talk to you again one of these days. That'd be great. Thanks, Chris. Dude, thanks. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Cheers,
1: Jake. Bye. Bye. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code Overcrest. the discount code is good not only on over car care.com but also on detailed image.com and car supplies please go check them out today well what an awesome I'm, I'm, guy
0: i'm looking at this this renault formula one car that he's talking about <laughs> it is 1.5 liter v6 turbo obviously right uh, from the turbo era 1000 horsepower in qualifying wow. track. Wow. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> and he, he, I mean he's not wrong. If you if you mess up in some of these old Formula 1 cars, you That's are it. that track the armco is going to eat you for dinner. Yeah, oh, what an incredible experience! What an incredible, what an incredible life he's leaving, leading. Yeah, and uh, it's it's awesome very, stories. It's uh, it's aspirational. There's always more. We could always be more like Ollie and drive more stuff. So there's always things to look forward to. Yes. So if exactly. anybody wants to give me a
1: Formula One car to drive,
0: <laughs> my phone number is six one two nine four. That number right me, here
1: that reminded me of a quote I heard. I don't know where or what the attribution is, but there are two things that every guy thinks he is great at. Yes, driving and sex yes. <laughs> yes yes Yes. but when it and comes down three, to it three
0: what? what does directions go along with driving oh does that i fit know in?
1: for a fact i am terrible at directions yes, you are oh my god
0: some of the drives that we've done together i'm like all right jake let's get this figured out nope nope jake has where no, are we where what are direction is that? <laughs> are we heading you don't even live in three dimensions i don't
1: even know if you live in
0: when it comes to directions i don't even know if you live in
1: two dimensions <laughs> yeah well thanks again to ollie that was awesome What? What do you want? I had to read. Ding dong.
0: (sighs) You want me just to slip the ads in somewhere? Let's just do it that way. All right, guys. We will see you on Friday. Take care. We'll be right back. back.